The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to take a look at the central claim and the cornerstone to Christianity. We pointed out that even outside of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an issue for which the answer for every man, woman, and child bears eternal consequences. Since the stakes are so high, each person owes it to themselves to carefully examine and weigh the evidence before making a conclusion. We began by identifying 12 presumptive facts regarding the investigation and exploration of Jesus' resurrection. In part one, we discussed the presumptive fact that Jesus was crucified and Jesus died. In part two, we addressed the fact that Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb, that Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion, that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death, and that a large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus 
after his death. In part two and three, we begin to see how each of Jesus' disciples was psychologically transformed after his resurrection. In part four and five, we begin to ask what theory best fits all of the twelve presumptive facts. So far, we have examined five of 17 theories and or allegations which generally represent the typical theories posed throughout history to explain Jesus' resurrection. The theories examined so far were, one, the disciples stole Jesus' body and preached Jesus as having raised from the dead. Two, the Jewish leaders took Jesus' body. 3. The Roman authorities took Jesus' body. 4. The women went to the wrong tomb. And 5. Jesus resuscitated after having swooned and came forth. So far, the theories presented have failed to provide an effective explanation and have been found to be logically deficient. In this episode, we continue examining the remaining theories posited. We continue in this episode with theory number six, the disciples had hallucinations. Once again, this theory, like the other 16 theories, consciously or unconsciously stipulates to the truthful premise of the following basic facts. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus died. D. Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb. And finally, E. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. In the case of this theory, even if the disciples had had a hallucination about the resurrection, all five of these presumptive facts would still exist as a factual basis for the above excuse to even be lodged as a potential valid explanation. So, as before, we have a theory posed by skeptics designed ostensibly to explain or dismiss Jesus' resurrection, which at the outset substantiates five of the twelve presumptive facts presented. As we continue our examination of this particular theory, we encounter the following problems. 1. If we are going to assume that having a hallucination explains the resurrection, then we also have to assume that each and every one of the disciples had the same or similar hallucinations, as well as hundreds of others who shared in that same hallucination. 2. Having the most elaborate hallucination on record, even using the best prescription drugs available just to make it more realistic, would still not preclude the Jewish religious or Roman authorities or any other skeptic, from opening Jesus' tomb and producing his corpse to dispel the claims of the resurrection driven by imagination or hallucination. 3. Hallucinations don't last forever. Eventually, statistics would dictate that one of the disciples and or followers of Jesus would have to come to their senses and realize that they had been hallucinating. However, 
In every case, the disciples continued soberly and faithfully to stick to the same story which they had seen, heard, and experienced. There is never any record of any disciple or follower who knew Jesus and was a witness to his resurrection, recanting because they had been hallucinating. 4. Typically speaking, if hallucinations were the reason the disciples made the claims that they did, then we would have to assume that these hallucinations continued throughout each of their lives. If not, then we would assume that one or more of them would come to their senses, even if only shortly, at which times we would expect them to speak rationally and truthfully about what happened. Under these circumstances, this type of in-and-out-again condition of hallucinations would seem to be more consistent with mental disease than with a simple one-time event of mass hallucination. This again being the case, we would have to consider the possibility that all the disciples and many of the other followers of Jesus were mentally ill. If so, then how do we explain some of the writings found in the New Testament, which even by many secular or even atheist standards contain some of the most beautiful, meaningful, inspirational, and uplifting thoughts to be found anywhere in literature? How do we explain their own self-described joy, peace, hope, endurance, perseverance, fearlessness in the face of intense persecution, trials, and tribulation, which would certainly worsen any mental problem said to exist. In all, when evaluating the allegation and or the theory that the disciples had hallucinations, we find that this theory provides no explanation as to how a hallucination would affect so many people from such diverse backgrounds so as to form the basis for the psychological transformation which are historically present in the disciples and the others' lives. It gives no answer as to why the percipient authorities, witnesses, and involved parties would not take the obvious and simple act of recovering Jesus' corpse from the tomb and confronting those who were making their delusional claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because of the tremendous inconsistencies and insufficiencies, this theory likewise fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. Theory number seven. The disciples made up the whole story. They were telling lies and they knew they were telling lies. Now again, this theory, like the other 16 theories, consciously or unconsciously stipulates to the truthful premise of the following presumptive facts. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus died. And D. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. As before, it would not make logical sense otherwise because if Jesus was not a historical figure, then he could not have been crucified and died, and then it would be impossible to make any claims, false or otherwise, that Jesus had risen from a death he had never endured. 
Likewise, it would be impossible for the disciples to lie if there was a known tomb where Jesus' lifeless body still lay. Thus, these four presumptive facts must exist as a factual basis for the above excuse to even be lodged as being a potential valid explanation. As we continue our examination of this theory, we encounter the following problems. As a precursor, our first problem is that we need to decide just exactly what the disciples lied about. This theory, which espouses that the disciples made, quote, the whole thing up, unquote, is overly broad since many features of Jesus' life, crucifixion, death, as well as the claims of his resurrection are matters of historical record. It has been documented, for example, that even many atheists do not deny certain presumptive facts regarding Jesus. Typically, while there may be variations in how it is worded, what is dismissed or denied is that Jesus experienced a supernatural resurrection from death via crucifixion back to life. Under this particular theory, it would be logical to assume that the explanation given pertains to the disciples who lied about Jesus resurrecting, appearing to them, and ascending to heaven. So, one, this being the case, the first problem would be that it would be vitally important for there to be no evidence to disprove that Jesus had not risen from the dead. In order for this to be accomplished, the disciples would have to do the following. A. Make sure that Jesus' tomb was and remained unknown and undiscovered. Or B. Recover and eliminate all trace of Jesus' corpse from the known tomb. Either of these two requirements would have been extremely difficult. First of all, it is beyond belief to assume that in the wake of the ever-increasing growth of Christianity, that the Jewish religious authorities and or the Roman authorities would not expend every resource to locate Jesus' tomb and expose his body to protect their interests. Second, it is even more implausible to believe that somehow all eleven disciples conspired together unto arrest, torture, and death to initiate stealing Jesus' body from inside a sealed, guarded tomb against penalty of the same punishment of Jesus. What would they gain? They had absolutely no idea where all of the fraudulent news of a risen Jesus would lead. There was no indication of any personal gain or profit in such a proposed lie. 2. If there was a known tomb, then they would be forced to take the above preemptive actions against the same odds with no promise of compensation. Since the tomb was known, the Jewish and or Roman authorities had but to open the tomb and drag Jesus' corpse out publicly to confound and stop the lie that Jesus was alive. 3. A known lie by one or more disciples would not provide the motivation for all of the disciples to be psychologically transformed for the rest of their lives. At some point, 
when any one of the disciples who knew the truth was alone being tortured unto death, that disciple would have great reason to recant and save themselves from further torture and death by simply admitting they had made up the whole thing. Yet the record is that they each remained faithful in their testimony despite being alone and in many instances being tortured and dying. The record of their faith and heroism deserves mention at this point. For example, Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia where he was killed by the sword. Luke was hanged by idolatrous priests on an olive tree in Greece as a result of preaching to the lost. John, the brother of James, preached the gospel in Asia Minor and was miraculously saved when he was boiled in oil in Rome, only to be sentenced to the prison mines of Patmos. Peter preached in Asia Minor. He was cast into a horrible prison called the Mamertine for nine months in absolute darkness. He endured monstrous torture, manacled to a post. In spite of all the suffering Peter was subjected to, he converted his jailers, Processus and Martianus, and 47 others. He was crucified upside down in Rome. James the Just was thrown over a hundred-foot cliff down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. When it was discovered that he had survived the fall, he was beaten to death with a fuller's club. James the Greater preached in Sardinia and in Spain and was ultimately beheaded at Jerusalem. The Roman officer who guarded James watched as James defended his faith at his trial. Later, the officer walked beside James to the place of execution. Overcome by conviction, he declared his new faith to the judge and knelt beside James to accept beheading as a Christian. Philip preached the gospel for 20 years in southern Russia, Galatia, and France. He was martyred in Turkey. Bartholomew witnessed in modern-day Turkey and was ultimately martyred by being flayed to death by a whip. Andrew preached the gospel in Asia Minor, Armenia, southern Russia, and possibly Greece, where he was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Patras, after which he was whipped severely by seven soldiers. He was tied to the cross to prolong his agony where for two days he continued to preach to his tormentors until he died. Andrew preached the gospel in Greece. He is said to have been put to death on a cross to which he was tied, not nailed. He lived two days in that state of suffering, still preaching to the people who gathered around. Thomas preached the gospel in Mesopotamia, including Babylon, Parthia, India, where he was stabbed with a spear in India while praying at the altar of his church. Jude was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias the Apostle, who was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot, was stoned and then beheaded. 
Mark was martyred when pagans of Serapis tied him to a horse's tail and dragged him through the streets of Alexandria's district of Bokalaya for two days until his body was torn to pieces. Barnabas preached throughout Italy and Cyprus and was stoned to death at Salonica. Finally, Paul was tortured and then beheaded by Nero in Rome. In all of these, there is not a single story of any disciple who admitted that they had been untruthful. So the question is, is it more probable and believable that all these people remain united in a conspiracy alone through torture and death based upon a known lie? Or is it more likely that they remained united in their story because it was the truth? In all, when evaluating the theory or the allegation that the disciples made up the whole story, they are telling lies and they knew they were telling lies, we find that this theory provides no explanation as to how a known lie would affect so many people from diverse backgrounds so as to form the basis for the psychological transformations which are historically present in the disciples' and others' lives. It gives no answer as to why the percipient authorities, witnesses, and involved parties would not take the obvious and simple act of recovering Jesus' corpse from the tomb and confronting those who were making their fictional claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because of the tremendous inconsistencies and insufficiencies, this theory likewise fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. Theory number eight, the gardener removed Jesus' body sometimes called the lettuce theory. This theory arises from the account given in John chapter 20 verses 11 through 17 regarding the first encounter with Jesus after his resurrection. The incident is recorded as follows, quote, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have lain him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Unquote. Thus, the short answer to this theory is that there never was a gardener. 
one has to ignore or deny the narrative given here, which clearly tells us that for whatever reason, Mary mistook the risen Jesus for a supposed gardener. However, Jesus himself here corrects Mary and identifies himself as her risen Lord. Nevertheless, this theory, euphemistically dubbed the lettuce theory, would have us believe that there was in fact a gardener, despite the text, who for whatever reasons unknown, took Jesus' body from the tomb and did something with it, causing everyone to assume that Jesus was risen from the dead. All this being said, this theory, like the other 16 theories, consciously or unconsciously stipulates to the following presumptive facts. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus died. D. Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb. And E. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. If this were not the fact, then there would be little, if any, point in discussing whether or not the gardener or anyone else, would have been able to remove a body which had never existed to begin with. It would also not make logical sense because if Jesus had not been crucified and died, there would have been no body which needed removing. Likewise, it would be impossible for the gardener to remove Jesus' body if he did not know where his body was. Lastly, making the allegation that the gardener or anyone else removed Jesus' body would be pretty hollow if Jesus' tomb was still occupied by his corpse. Thus, all five of these presumptive facts must exist as a factual basis for the above excuse to even be lodged as a potential valid explanation. As we continue our examination of this theory, we encounter the following problems. A. This theory fails to find any historical support beyond the mention of a gardener in the above text, which in context is again abundantly clear that Mary was mistaken in her initial identification of Jesus, who she momentarily assumed to be a gardener. B. This theory fails to provide any motivation or reason why a gardener would want to risk implicating himself in the removal of a person considered to be a convicted criminal and enemy of both the Jewish and Roman authorities. C. This theory fails to explain how the gardener managed to single-handedly sneak past the posted guard, open a sealed tomb, push a 2,000-plus-pound stone uphill, extricate Jesus' body from 75 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and then carry his adult, heavy, lifeless body past the same posted guards, all without getting caught. D. If there was a gardener, then we must assume that either it was a secret that there was a gardener, or we must assume that despite the fact that it was well known that there was a gardener, that not one of the very passionate and motivated Jewish and or Roman authorities would ever take the time to locate and question the gardener in the obvious effort to discover the truth. If it were such a secret, then how do we explain our knowledge of such a secret 
2,000 years later. E. This theory fails to give any believable explanation for the psychological transformation of the disciples. Under this theory, we are to believe that each of the depressed and discouraged disciples were completely transformed for the remainder of their lives by the simple disappearance of Jesus' body, despite all of the troubles and trials that they went through. F. Further, not only were the disciples simply overly excited by the disappearance of Jesus' body, but they then proceeded to repeatedly lie about having seen the physical resurrected body of Jesus and having eaten and touched him. To compound matters, the disciples managed to somehow maintain this same lie despite persecution, arrest, trials, torture, and death. G. Not only did the disciples enter into this conspiracy, but we have the report that hundreds of others also maintained that they saw the risen Jesus, despite the fact that he was simply missing. One of the most perplexing aspects of this theory is this. Since the only place which historically makes mention of a gardener in connection to Jesus' resurrection is the Bible, then by logical deduction we must assume that the atheists and or the skeptics who are making this claim are using the Bible as a historical proof text with which to argue a theory to then disprove the same Bible which says that Jesus rose from the dead. So the question is, why do they believe the Bible in one case but dismiss and deny the same Bible in another case. I would submit that this is an example of how being intellectually disingenuous and dishonest to begin with tends to prohibit the search for truth wherever it may lead. In all, when evaluating the allegation and or theory that the gardener removed Jesus' body and the disciples subsequently falsely preached Jesus as having raised from the dead, we find that this explanation provides very little, if any, credibility which would be necessary to initiate the birth of the Christian faith. This theory would hold less potential still to maintain, much less grow, the Christian church. In conclusion, this theory is highly inadequate to explain and justify Jesus' resurrection and the phenomena of his church. Because of this theory's inconsistencies and insufficiencies, this theory fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part 7 of this series. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, and or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.